We're going to be in Joshua chapter 6. We're going to be reading of a uh, reading in a passage and a story that you are well familiar with, most likely. In fact, if, of the many different uh, Bible stories that are in children's Bibles, this is usually one that is, that is in there. We're going to be speaking about the fall of Jericho today. And we're going to read the entire chapter together, and then I'm going to break it down into three different parts. But before I begin, <clears throat> I'd like to start by sort of as an introduction. Oftentimes, when we read through history, we think of different wars that were fought and sometimes specific battles that were fought. And we always identify, we often identify those battles with different generals, different commanders, different leaders in the battle, sometimes the enemy. And we know their names. We know the individuals that fought valiantly. We know the individuals that gave their lives in extraordinary ways. And sometimes those heroes, if you will, if you want to, call, if you want to give them that title, and in fact they likely are heroes, are often honored throughout history for their efforts during the battle, and oftentimes for their sacrifice. And oftentimes the president will even give medals to those individuals who fought valiantly, the Medal of Honor. In some cultures, it is the, the aim, especially in the past, it is the aim, it was the aim, for warriors to die in battle. And that with death brought great honor, not just to their family, but also to them in the afterlife. And so there, there is much to do about being glorious in battle. However, as we go through Scripture, what we see time and time again, is that the one who is to receive the honor and the glory is not a specific individual from the army of the Lord, but the Lord himself. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord in every way. And that's what we're going to see today in striking detail as we see the fall of of Jericho. Now, just to give you a little bit of a historical synopsis of the city. Now, where, where we're at right now in Joshua, of course, is that the, the, uh, the Israelites have passed through the Jordan. They are now on dry land, and then they are now preparing themselves for the battles, not battle, but the battles that are coming ahead. And the Lord has promised that He will not leave them, that He is going to be with them, and that their enemies will melt before them. And we know this, and we saw this as the two spies enter Jericho to scope things out, and they are hidden by Rahab, and Rahab herself admits they, they have heard of the stories of the Israelites and what their God has done for them. And that, that, that's a telling sign right there that they don't identify the victories, and they don't identify the extreme success with a people group, but with the Lord that that people group serves. 
And now they, hit, they stand on the cusp of going to battle with Jericho. It's the first city that they come to. Now, Jericho, historically, has a pretty uh, uh, famous and historical footprint. Archaeologists who have gone to that site, who have done lots of digging and have looked through historical documents, have actually dug up parts of Jericho. They're able to see it. They're able to see the walls. There weren't, in fact, just one wall. There were actually two walls around Jericho, and those walls had towers. And when the historians look back on that city and looking through the archaeological evidence and when they look through the data and look through the historical record, they found that in those towers and in those walls, people lived there. There were people in those walls. There's evidence of that. And so we see that with, uh, with Rahab, that she lived in the city wall. And they built these walls in order to keep uh, invaders out. And it was very difficult for foreign armies to come in and destroy a city when the, when the gates of the city were up. Usually there would be one gate, maybe two gates for a small city, one on the front end, one on the back end. And in the evening, those gates would be up so that invaders couldn't come in and invade the city. And so Jericho, the city, knew that the Israelites were on the cusp. They knew that they were coming, and so the gates were up to protect them from the Israelites. Now, what's fascinating is that when you look through the historical record, what they can see is that at around the time that the Israelites would have invaded Jericho, there is evidence of a massive earthquake that had taken place to destroy all those walls. So the walls that were built at Jericho, at one point, they were lower walls, and then they built taller walls on top of the walls, but those walls were not real strong. They weren't strong. They were enough to keep invading armies out, but they weren't strong enough to withstand a massive earthquake. And so at some point around the time that the Israelites would have been invading Jericho, there is evidence of a massive earthquake to bring down the walls of Jericho. Now, if that isn't interesting enough, what follows, I thought was even more astounding, is that there is evidence that Jericho was set on fire afterwards. That there wasn't just an earthquake, but that there was a massive fire that destroyed the entire city. Now, folks, if an earthquake was just a natural occurrence, typically in the ancient world, it's not like you have a ton of propane tanks and gas lines running through the city where an earthquake is just going to erupt those gas lines. You're going to have explosions and setting everything on fire. If a fire was set at that magnitude to burn and destroy an entire city, that had to be intentional. And so now I, you've heard me say this, is that I don't put tons of stock in archaeology, in historical, uh, secular historical data to prove the biblical account. I trust God's word inherently, okay, whether there is archaeological proof or not. But I do find it entertaining to myself that as I read there, especially when secular historians try to uh, dissuade individuals from believing the story of Jericho. In fact, many believe that it's simply an allegory, um, that I find it interesting that there is historical evidence. Now, one thing I will say is that some people believe that because that, that Joshua was written many, many years later, and the allegory, quote-unquote, 
of Jericho was written to explain the earthquake and the destruction. However, as, be, by, as believers in God's word, we know that that isn't true. Jericho would have likely been a city of maybe, it wasn't a huge city. It would have probably been a city of around 300, maybe around 3,000 at the most. And so it wasn't a massive city, but it wasn't, you know, tiny. And the inhabitants there would have been pagans. They would have been believing in multiple gods, gods that are other than Yahweh. And an interesting thing for the kiddos, because I know, you know, I've, I've, I've got to bring some attention to the kiddos here, is that when individuals would die, their families would remove their head and they would keep the skull of their deceased family member. They would bury the rest of the body and then they would paint the skull to look like the features of their deceased person and they would keep it in their homes. Not exactly Jewish tradition, right? And so very pagan habits and things like that. And so I'm going to go back. You might be saying, why is he going to this much? There's a reason why I'm going to this detail, because I believe it's going to help us explain why the Lord commanded Israel to do what they did. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story of Jericho, Father, which we know to be not an allegory, but truth. We know it to be the, 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 uh, the, word, the inspired word of God, Lord, and the providence of God. Uh, that this would occur. And Father, we know that as we read through this text, that the battle certainly belongs to you in every way, in every fashion. And not only that battle, Father, but every battle that we face, Lord, that battle belongs to you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would remove any, any uh, obstacle in our way from experiencing the fullness of your love and your grace in our lives, Father, the mercy in our, in our, in, that you give to us throughout our lives, Father, and that we would be able to drink deeply uh, from your well. Father, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us read through chapter 6. And just kind of, and what I want you to do is I read through this. And so kiddos, as I read through this, I want you to think about, I want you to listen for those points in Scripture where, it's, where you can hear that God is the one doing things, okay? So be listening for that as I read. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, going around the city once. Thus shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns around before the ark, on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall flat. And the people shall go up, every one straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following him. 
and the armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests went bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking with them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. And on the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the, tr- when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you devote when you have devoted them to you, take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all the silver and the gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been the spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives out and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the city, only the silver, And the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And Joshua laid an oath on them at this time, saying, "Cursed Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. At the cost of the firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. That's a long chapter. But I felt it necessary to read the whole part so you could see every aspect of what's happening here. Now the first thing I want us to look at in this passage is this. I want us to look at the power of God. Okay. Now as we read through here, And we see, number one, I told the kiddos to listen to this, but hopefully everybody else was too. The Lord says in verse 2, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, 
See, I have given you, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. That's the first thing that we need to recognize. Israel did not conquer Jericho. The Lord did. The Lord is who destroyed Jericho. The Lord is who led that battle. And He is the one that we honor and we give glory to for the victory. And we see that through the very strict instruction that God gives Joshua and the Israelites as they are taking down Jericho. Mind you, they did not conceive of some major battle plan. There was no strategy in there that man was to follow that, you know, you go through the gates and you swim through the water and you do all of these things in order to take. No, what we're going to do is the Ark of the Covenant is going to go before the people. And remember, the Ark of the Covenant represents the very presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant is going to go before the people. And all you're going to do is surround that city, walk around that city. And as you go, you're going to blast these trumpets. The priests are going to blast the trumpets. It resembles this idea or this sense that the king is coming. The king has arrived. It's a ceremonial ceremonial horn that's being blown to celebrate that this king is ready for battle and he is coming to destroy, but he is not destroying at this time with the edge of the sword. He's not destroying with bombs, planes, nukes. It's just the power of God at work. Now, if at any time they were to open their mouths, or they were to do anything contrary to what God had directed them, if they had done anything in disobedience to the Lord, and if those walls had come down because of that, or if that victory could have been attributed to the actions of Israel, then at that point, people might be giving praise to individuals in the camp of Israel, giving praise to Joshua, giving praise to other individuals. But no, Everything that occurred at that moment was directed by God, and it was very passive. There was no aggressiveness in this. It was simply a massive army swarming this city from outside its walls. In fact, if you can imagine, you know, some of Jericho might have been thinking, those individuals that that were a little bit um, uh, ignorant of what Yahweh had already accomplished might be standing on top of those walls thinking, what are these morons doing? Why aren't they trying to break in? They've got a massive army in here. Surely they could find some way. They knew their walls weren't that strong. But all they're doing is circling this thing. Well, they must not be as stout as we think they are. However, others who were melting before Israel were probably looking and being terrified by the sound of these trumpets and these individuals. Just imagine that. These priests, the only sound that they would have heard is the trumpets of the priests as they surrounded that city. No one was to make a sound as they were walking around. They walked around that city one single time per day for six days. No shouting, no arms at all. And then on the seventh day, on the seventh day, Joshua, via the Lord, instructs the people of Israel to walk around that city seven times. 
And when those trumpets blow after that seventh time, shout, why? For the Lord has given you the city. And the walls come tumbling down. Now, there are some that believe that those walls came down just purely by the shout that these individuals, they shouted and the Lord just caused those, those walls to tumble. However, I tend to believe that the Lord might, it might very well have worked through the power of a massive earthquake. As that shout occurs, a massive earthquake comes and just absolutely topples that entire city. The aim here is this, though. It was the power of God that brought Jericho to its knees. It wasn't people. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't by Israel's good works. They were faithful. They were obedient. But it was by the power of God that brings these walls tumbling down. Now, if God can bring the walls of Jericho to the ground to allow Israel to capture that city, what is it that God can't do? How often is it that we have struggles and challenges that are so much more, so much smaller than what Israel was facing? And yet we oftentimes believe that we'll, we'll and, and we wouldn't necessarily verbally say this. We wouldn't say that God can't handle it, but we say that God can't handle it by the way we approach the problem. We either approach the problem without prayer, we approach a problem impatiently, or we approach a problem by worldly means. And each one of those ways demonstrates that we don't actually believe in, number one, God's providence, and number two, on God's timing. You see, God's power was over the fall of Jericho. But God's power is also over every single thing that we face in our lives. Every single thing God's providence and His power is affecting. And so when we face challenges... When we struggle, when we face things that seem too impossible for us to overcome, the first thing that we do is we approach it in prayer. That's the very first thing. I imagine, even if not verbally, that as these Israelites were going around this city, many of them were praising and giving glory to God as they were going around this city. We approach our challenges with prayer. Acknowledging that God is omnipotent in every way. Not only omnipotent, but also omniscient. He is all-knowing. I am quite certain that many of these Israelites, probably at this time when Joshua said, I, don't, I want you to put your swords in your sheaths, and I want you to keep your mouths shut, and I just want you to walk around this city, and God's going to bring these walls down. And I guarantee you that some of them, at least for a moment, we're thinking, what? This is unlike any battle I've ever heard of. All right, where are the catapults? Where, 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 where's all the artillery, right? What, what do we do here in order to get these walls to come down? We've got to do something. But it's very likely that many of them didn't question Joshua too much. 
Because just days before what happened, the Lord splits the, sea, splits the waters of the Jordan as exactly as how he split the seas of the Red Sea. If God can divide the Red Sea, if God can divide the Jordan, and if God can bring the walls of Jericho down to the ground merely with a shout of his people, then the Lord can intercede and bring you through any challenge and any struggle that we face. We First, we pray. We must pray. Second of all, we must be patient. I guarantee you, as they were walking through around that wall for six days straight, they're like, man, let's just get this over with. All right. It wasn't a massive city, but there's still a lot of walking. Like, can we just, I, I bet you that some of them saw a crack in the wall. Man, there's a crack in the wall. If we could just get in there and kind of like pull a brick out or something like that, we could like slide through there. So when we're going to South, when we went to South Africa, as you're going down the highway, there would be these towns that were on either side of the street, all right? And they were very poor, very impoverished. And one of the reasons they put these walls up is because it would, it, the government put them up so that you couldn't see the impoverishment in, in, these, in these towns, right? And they were shacks, they were hovels. It was, it was very sad. So there were these massive brick walls that went across, but every now and then there would be a hole in the wall. And what's interesting, though, in that hole in the wall, you would often see on the other side of that hole right there a warthog. Not a living warthog, a dead warthog. Because a warthog had been inside the city, and it was running along that brick wall looking for a crack in the wall, and all of a sudden he found it, and as soon as he found that hole, what's he do? Shoots out of there. Well, what does he shoot out into? The highway. And what happens? Yeah, that's right, that's right. It gets mashed. All right? But here's the thing. If the Israelites were looking for cracks in the wall, what ends up happening? They end up getting crushed. Because they, were, they would have been impatient. We need to be patient with the Lord's timing. The Lord will bring us through in His timing. And we also have to be very careful about not trying to solve our challenges by the means of the world but solving our challenges by the means of God. Through obedience, through faithfulness. There are many challenges that we face that if you looked at the, that the world might say, oh, just do this. Just, you know, like, just twist some numbers around. Just do this, and that, that'll solve your issue. You could, you could do this. Yeah, it's not exactly right, but nobody will find out. Nobody will know, Right? I hear that all the time. Well, nobody's really going to know that. Really? The Lord knows. We don't solve our issues with a lack of prayer, with impatience, and by doing things the way the world will do it. We do things the way the Lord would have us to do it. And the Lord will see us through those, just like he saw the Israelites in Jericho. So the first thing that we see here is the power of God to bring down the walls of Jericho. The second thing that we see is the justice of God. Now, I'm going to tell you that this passage, along with a few passages after jo in Joshua, are pieces of Scripture that many secular individuals, when they claim that they don't believe in God because they don't believe that a loving God would kill women and children and donkeys and oxen because there are just a bunch of innocent individuals, right? And there are some individuals that even say, well, the Lord didn't do that. No, let's read what he does here. 
It says in verse 20, So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. The only thing that was preserved, preserved out of the city of Jericho was the gold, silver, iron, and bronze that were going to be used in the Lord's treasury, likely for worship, and Rahab and her family. Those, that's all that was preserved. And in fact, it was so utterly destroyed that they didn't just go in there and slaughter everyone with the sword. They went in there and they set everything on fire afterwards. It was a massacre. It was an absolute massacre. And the world says, how can we believe in a loving God who commands His people to go in and slaughter innocents? Now, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this. This is a difficult passage. That is exactly what happened. Israelites went in, and they didn't just kill warriors in Jericho. They killed all the women. They killed all the children. They killed all the donkeys and all the oxen. And if your favorite puppy was in there, they would have killed it too. Just, just telling you, all right? And cats too, but you know they're cats. So anyway, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Donna, you knew I had to go there, right? Okay. Why? Why? The first thing I want to say is this, is that our God is just. Our God is just in every way. So how does the justice of God and the love of God uh, stand against this passage where God himself is commanding his people to go in and massacre this entire village. The first, to say, first thing that we must say is this. To label anyone innocent is contrary to God's word. To label anyone innocent is contrary to God's word. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have. All, all are condemned to destruction outside the mercy and the grace of God. That's the first thing to remember. There were no innocents in Jericho. There were none. You might say, what about the kids? There were none. The moment that we are born, we are born into sin. That's what original sin is. We are born into it. There are no innocents here. And so to say that God was, was, caused, was, was instructing for the massacre of innocent people, that is a worldly claim. It is not a biblical claim. That's the first thing to say. The second thing that we must say is this is that when Israel, in their own mind, saw fit to not be obedient to God and save some of the cities for themselves, because we're going to read that. 
that in the future, Israel is going to disobey God and not destroy everything. They're going to keep some oxen and donkey for themselves. They're going to keep some slaves and things like that. And when that happens, it does not go well for the Israelites. God punishes them. Furthermore, oftentimes when they save some of the spoil that God forbids for themselves, they end up beginning to assimilate with the people. They begin taking the the, the religion of Yahweh, the one true religion, and they start assimilating into paganism. What God is doing here is He is cleansing He is cleansing the Holy Land for His people. This is His land. These are His people. And He is cleansing the earth of these individuals. Another thing that we ought to say is this, is that this moment of what we would call extreme massacre or destruction is temporary. This isn't something that we see throughout all of Scripture. It is but a moment in a local place. It's not something that takes place throughout all history. It is for a period of time, for a, for a very specific purpose. But the final point that I want to make about this, about the justice of God, when we ask why God, a loving God, a just God, would do this, the best answer that we can possibly say is this, because He's God. Because He's God, and God can do whatever He wants. He owns us. He owns every grain of sand, every star in the sky, every donkey, every oxen, the cattle on a thousand hills are His. Every child that is born is a gift of God to you. But remember that you are His creation. I oftentimes hear a, a parent, a, a new parent, when they have a baby, they say, they'll, they'll look at their spouse loving. Usually this is on a Hallmark movie. Um, and they'll look at their spouse, they'll look at the newborn baby, as long as it's cute, and then they'll look at their spouse and say, we created this. And I look at the TV and I'm like, no, you didn't. No, you. D- I talk to Hallmark movies a lot. It's really weird. We didn't create anything. God did. And God can do with us as He pleases. When somebody says, what gives God the right to do this? What I want to say is, What gives you the right to even question what God's motives are and what His plan is and what His providence is? You have no right to question that. But what we do know from the totality of Scripture is that God is just. And if God commands something, even if from our earthly sinful eyes it seems horrible and it seems terrible and it seems unjust and it seems unloving, what we can guarantee is that if God is the author of that action, is that number one, it is just, and two, it is benevolent in any way. That's a big word for loving, kids. All right? 
God is benevolent in every single way. But God is also gracious. So we see the walls of Jericho coming down by the power of God. We, saw the, we see the justice of God in Him cleansing that city. But finally we see the grace of God. Because remember, is that there are many who are devoted to destruction. That's what the Bible, how the Bible describes it. Those who are outside of Christ are devoted to destruction. If you think what happened to Jericho is a massacre. Imagine to what is going to happen to those who die outside of Christ. They will wish they had been inhabitants of Jericho or Sodom and Gomorrah or any other city that the Israelites crushed. And God is completely just in doing so, but God is also gracious. Because it says here, in verse 25, but Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household, and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive, and she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. God is gracious. Now, God did not have to save Rahab. He did not have to save her family. You know, he could have said, you know what, Rahab, you will be saved because you informed the spies and you were a product of my plan and my providence, so I'm going to save you. And by the way, Rahab's, na Rahab's name is in the genealogy of Jesus, but not the rest of her family. They, the rest of her family has no part to play in that genealogy to, uh, to Jesus. Just Rahab's name is in that genealogy. But God saw fit out of His mercy and His grace to save not only Rahab, but to save her entire family. Because God is gracious. Was she obedient? Yes, she was obedient. She was obedient not because of some inherent goodness that was in her, she too fell short of the glory of God. Folks, she was a prostitute. She was obedient because she saw the power of Yahweh, the one true God. She saw who He was and what He could do, not just to His enemies, but also to those whom He loves. God is gracious in every way. And so as we close... We should remember a few things. One, there is no challenge, there is no obstacle that cannot be overcome by the power of God. Now that seems like a very trite point in a sermon. I get it. Okay, that almost sounds like something that would be in a reader's digest. A Christian reader's digest. But folks, it's trite, it may sound cliche, but it's true. There is no challenge that cannot be overcome by God's power. The second thing that will not show up in the Reader's Digest or on a Hallmark movie is that God is just. And God's justice is not just love and mercy and grace to those who love Him, but it is also total destruction to His enemies. 
And the final point is that we often want to characterize ourselves as Joshua. We want to be Team Joshua. It's kind of like when kids make believe that they're Harry Potter. They're in the movie Harry Potter. They are almost always on what team? What team, Jackson? What team, when you're playing Harry Potter, do you want to be on? Which house are you in? Huh? Gryffindor. Gryffindor. Not Slytherin. Not Slytherin. But we are Rahab. We are Rahab. As we live our lives and we walk through this life, let us remember that the power of God has power over every challenge, that God is just in every way, but God's grace is powerful still. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you and we give you all the glory. Father, I pray that as we as we live our lives and as we follow you, Father, I pray that we would honor you and give you all the glory, that we would pray, that we would not be impatient, that we would not try to solve our problems by the world's means, but that we would be faithful in everything. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.